Welcome back to 10 in 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, to the first part of our two-part episode on Meriwether Lewis. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. This week, we featured our friend and fellow historical enthusiast, Derek, who has done quite a bit of research on Meriwether Lewis. So we're going to begin part one of our interview right now. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Derek Peck. I am a historical interpreter for Middle Tennessee. I am the guest star on today's episode of 10 in 20. So we've asked you on this episode because you have done quite a bit of research about Meriwether Lewis, who, if I'm being completely honest, the extent of my knowledge of Meriwether Lewis is his Wikipedia page. But you know how on Wikipedia you have like the upper paragraph and then all like the meat of the issue in the bottom? I just know like the upper paragraph. You, you never got to the bottom. No, I never got to the bottom. So why don't you go ahead and tell us who he was and how he relates to the Tennessee story. Well, Meriwether Lewis is buried in Tennessee, but he's originally from Virginia. He's best known for his part in the Lewis and Clark expedition. While he's young, living in Virginia, his dad dies. So his mom gets remarried and the family moves down to Georgia. Eventually, when Lewis gets a little bit older, he moves back to Virginia, where he takes up an education. After his education is finished, he joins the military. While he's in the military, one of his friends, who is serving in the military with him, is a guy named William Clark. Eventually, Lewis ends up attaining the rank of captain. However, he transfers from an active military service into being Thomas Jefferson's personal aide in the White House. Now, Jefferson does not really have family at this point. His wife has died. There's nobody else living with him in the White House. So Lewis actually gets to come and live with Jefferson in the White House. And he's still pretty young at this point. He is young. And Lewis, he's going to attain quite a bit of repute and accomplish quite a bit during his young life. He dies at the age of 35, to give you some perspective. He is in his late 20s when he starts his work as an aide. While he is an aide to Thomas Jefferson, he's going to do a tour of the military to root out seditious officers, make sure that anybody who could potentially overthrow the government is just kicked out. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to kick out everybody who's a mediocre officer. Anybody who's incompetent and anybody who is potentially rebellious, they're going to be removed altogether. However, Thomas Jefferson starts to brainstorm a different project for Lewis. Thomas Jefferson has believed for quite some time the same thing that many Americans, as well as many Spanish and French explorers, have believed for quite a long time. There has been this rumor for centuries that there is a Northwest Passage to get from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific. Now, throughout the years, many of the rivers and waterways throughout North America have been explored, and one by one, it has become apparent that those rivers are not viable routes to get to the other side of North America. However, there is one more river which has yet to be explored. It's the Missouri River. Transfers all the way west from St. Louis, Missouri. So it attaches to the Mississippi River at St. Louis. Thomas Jefferson hopes that if the United States can explore that river, 
It will lead all the way to the West Coast, and he could potentially open up trade from one side of the continent to the other, and then the United States can be the middleman for global traffic from Asia all the way to Europe. Same idea that Christopher Columbus had of, hey, I'm going to sail around the world and connect the Indies with Europe and not actually have to stop for land. And so Jefferson picks Meriwether Lewis to embark on this expedition? He does. What did he see in Meriwether Lewis, or why, why was he the one he picked? Lewis was very talented in not only wilderness survival skills, but he had an extreme interest in botany, in zoology, and more specifically in stuff like ornithology, geology. Lewis was kind of the Renaissance man you would want out in the wilderness. And he showed great leadership skills because he was a captain in the military when our military was very minuscule. He is commissioned by Jefferson to put together a team which can sail up the Missouri River. Their job is to take lunar observations, take measurements, and chart the Missouri River. They are supposed to record the plants and animals that are out west. They are supposed to make treaties with Native American tribes. Basically, anything you can think of out west, Lewis is supposed to write it down, put it in a journal, and when he gets back from exploring the West, that journal is supposed to be published so that the United States government, as well as the United States populace, will have access to that information. How much of this land that they're going to be exploring does the U.S. own at this point? From St. Louis westward, none of it. They own absolutely nothing. In fact, they are planning to dive into French territory. So... Jefferson, he has good relations with the French. It's not like he's an enemy who is diving into hostile territory. But it's still not owned by the United States government. If you want to hear more about the French in the Americas, I encourage you to listen to our episode that we did about de Munbrian, the French fur trader who was the original settler of Nashville. Shameless plug. Shameless plug, yeah. <laughs> but how does that area end up becoming United States territory. So at the time that the American Revolution is taking place, the idea of individual liberty is starting to spread all the way across the West. It's not just this North American ideal that stays strictly in the American colonies. The French particularly try to piggyback off of the American model and start their own revolution. Now that revolution becomes a bit more anarchistic. There's a lot of violence in the streets of France, but eventually an individual named Napoleon Bonaparte decides to stage a coup and he takes over the French government. Now, Napoleon is not royalty. He's a commoner, so to speak, and now he's declaring himself emperor of France. Think about this from the perspective of European nobility folks in Austria or Russia or England, they're thinking to themselves, hang on a second, the French monarch just got his head cut off, and now a commoner has declared himself emperor. What's going to happen in our country? Are we going to lose our position or worse? So a lot of the French nobility decide, hey, we're going to go ahead and try to put our foot down while we still can. We are going to wage war against Napoleon. These European countries are ganging up on Napoleon, and many of them are waging war on him simultaneously. To defend his borders, 
Napoleon needs more money in order to pay for the war effort. Well, Napoleon has 828,000 square miles of property in North America that he's basically doing nothing with except gaining some goods from fur trappers. So he figures, you know what? I'm not getting a lot out of that territory, and I could really use the extra money. The United States wants to buy New Orleans from me anyway. I'm going to go ahead and make them an offer. If they pay me $15 million, I am going to sell them all 828,000 square miles of property. It is the dead center of the modern-day United States, and it more or less doubles the size of the United States at the time. It is a massive land deal. Thomas Jefferson's administration cannot help but try and acquire that property. So they buy it. Meriwether Lewis's expedition now serves multiple purposes. He is going to be exploring the West and charting everything about it. He's going to try to open up a route for trade from one end of the continent to the other. And he is now going to be exploring new American territory. And Thomas Jefferson has had an idea brewing in the back of his mind for quite some time. This idea is not unique to Jefferson, but Jefferson is really going to give it a kickstart. This idea is for the United States to expand westward. New states need to be added. New settlers need to move westward. New relations need to be had with the Native Americans. Who just basically had their land sold right out from under them. Or worse. Or worse, yes. yeah. So, Jefferson is going to take this opportunity to send Lewis out west. Lewis starts putting together a team of over 30 men, mainly rough-and-tumble frontiersmen, who can help him on this expedition. One of the individuals who Lewis chooses is his old army buddy, William Clark. Apparently, when they were in the military together, Lewis had learned to trust Clark. So, they begin their expedition in St. Louis. It is the last city before they finally embark into the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase. Lewis and Clark sail up the Missouri River, and one of the first Native American tribes that they encounter are the Teton Sioux, who had a reputation of being fairly vicious. The reputation was so strong that Jefferson had already heard about it all the way back east. And he told Lewis, look, we need to make sure that our relations with the Teton Sioux are amicable. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do anything with the Missouri River. And the Teton Sioux are pretty skeptical of Lewis and his team. So, they refuse passage at first. They require a lot of gifts from Lewis and Clark. Every time Lewis and Clark want to leave, the Teton Sioux ask for more. Eventually, Lewis and Clark get ticked off enough that Lewis actually orders his men to aim a cannon at them, which was mounted on their keelboat. Eventually, the Teton Sioux back down. But Lewis, at this point, has directly negated one of the things Jefferson wanted him to do, which was make sure that the relationship with the Teton Sioux was amicable. Regardless, Lewis and Clark continue their trip up the Missouri River. As they continue up the Missouri River, another major tribe they encounter are the Mandans, who are closely associated with the Hidatsa. By this point, it's already approaching winter. Lewis and Clark need a place to stay, because they're in North Dakota. So they decide to camp out with the Mandans and Hidatsa over the winter. And while they are there, they meet a young Native American pregnant 16-year-old girl. 
There are various names that she goes by. I read this one in the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Yes, it is in the first paragraph. She goes by different names depending on how you pronounce it. Some say it's Sacagawea, some say Sacagawea. I'm going to go by the classical United States American pronunciation of Sacagawea. While they are spending the winter there, Lewis actually helps Sacagawea birth her baby. Sacagawea and her husband, who is a French-Canadian fur trapper, are going to be recruited by the Lewis and Clark expedition to continue westward the next spring. Main reason being, these two individuals are well acquainted with the Native American languages which are spoken further west. So she's going to be lugging this baby with her as they continue across Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. Or at least the modern day states. Think about that for a 16-year-old girl. The next spring, Lewis and Clark continue their journey. Think about what they're dealing with at this point. They're dealing with one of the longest rivers in the world. The Missouri River stretches all the way from St. Louis, Missouri to the Rockies, and they're fighting it upstream, and it's getting rougher. So they're having to either row very hard, or they're having to use poles to push it forward, or they're having to get out of the boat, grab a rope, and drag it along the side of the river. Eventually, they get to a place which is known as the Great Falls of the Missouri River. And the falls is not really one falls per se. There is one main one, but there are multiple sets of falls associated with it. So Lewis and Clark now have to get their men to portage the boat to carry the boat on their backs. How big of a boat are we talking about? We're talking about one large enough for 30-plus people, plus their supplies, which are supposed to last them for a year at a time. And we're not just talking about food. We're talking about the instruments that Lewis is supposed to use to measure things out west. We're talking about whiskey. We're talking about guns and gunpowder. This boat is big, and they're carrying it on their shoulders for 16 plus miles so that they can get around the falls. Can you imagine as they walk past groups of Native Americans? <laughs> uh, what are those guys doing? I've poured a canoe one mile and that was horrible. I can't imagine doing that sounds a awful. huge boat 16 miles. Well, picture this one. The ground that they are walking on is covered in prickly pear cactuses and all they have on their feet are moccasins. So the moccasins that they've got on, brand new ones, are lasting for like a day or two at a time. Now Lewis and his team reach the other side of the Great Falls. They continue up the Missouri River until they finally reach its source. Now you would expect at this point for the team to be like, oh my goodness, we finally reached the Pacific Ocean. They've reached the Rocky Mountains, (sighs) the worst mountain range in North America. It makes the Appalachians look like a picnic, and those mountains are all that these frontiersmen are used to at this point. These guys are now going to have to spend the entire summer going over mountains that are covered in snow and ice. The vegetation in those mountains is so poor that they end up having to eat their candles. There's not even game up there for them to shoot because there's so little vegetation. They need a guide to show them over the Rockies, or at least somebody to point out a trail for them. They also need to make sure that they have horses. 
some type of animal who can help them carry their luggage and get over the Rockies. Now, they know that there are Shoshone Indians on this side of the Rockies, and they figure, hey, Sacagawea speaks Shoshone, maybe they can help them out. Eventually, Lewis and Clark's team comes across a tribe of Shoshone Indians. Sacagawea ends up translating for Lewis and Clark's team that they need to find a way to get some horses. Sacagawea had a rather troubled past. When she was very young, a little girl, she had been kidnapped from her tribe of Shoshones. She had been sold off, and eventually she found herself in the possession of her husband, the French-Canadian fur trapper, Charbonneau. But now she's heading back into her home territory, she's translating for Lewis and Clark, and halfway through the conversation with the chief, she pauses for a second, and she looks at him very close, and she realizes it's her brother, whom she had been kidnapped from all those years before. You can't make up stuff like this. You would expect this to be in a novel of some kind, but it's far more exciting than that. She's, of course, a teenager, so she's jumping up and down all giddy. And you know, now that she's back home, she could tell her brother, hey, let's knock off these white guys so that I can rejoin the tribe. But she doesn't. Not only does she help them barter for horses, she decides to keep going with the expedition. I have to assume that they left the boat behind at this point. Yes, they did. Okay. Yes, <laughs> they not, did. They're not pulling it up the mountains. They're not pulling it up the mountains, no. They are taking their supplies with them as much as they can, but, you know, their rations are running out, so they just pretty much have to carry their guns and gunpowder. Eventually, they reach the other side of the Rocky Mountains, and they come to the Columbia River which runs through modern-day Washington and Oregon. The Columbia River is the biggest salmon fishery in the world. There are more salmon in that river than any other place. So you can imagine how happy these guys are to finally have something to eat. And there's quite a few Native Americans in that region as well, primarily the Nez Perce and the Snake Indians. The Nez Perce, of course, are looking at these white guys like, hey, how'd they get over the Rocky Mountains? But... They are kind enough to help Lewis and Clark out. Now, that's not to say everything that they do for Lewis and Clark is free, but they could have killed him right there if they wanted to. It's not like Lewis and Clark were at their strongest like they had been on the other side of the Rockies. At least there, they had the strength to defend themselves. Now, they're weak, their ammunition is not as plentiful as it had been, but the Nez Perce are kind enough to help them out. As they are traveling down the Columbia River, they get more information and have more observations of the Nez Perce tribe. The Nez Perce tribe in modern-day Washington and Oregon is the most horse-rich tribe in North America. To give you some perspective, it was not uncommon for the average Nez Perce man to own 50 horses at a time. Eventually, Lewis and Clark finally get to the Pacific Ocean. Huge deal for them. And as they get closer to the Pacific, they start to realize that the Native Americans are wearing European clothes, like top hats, and they are speaking English. 
they just begin to realize that, I feel like that would be something you'd notice right away. Well, it starts it starts to fade in. So it's not like this, the same ones that they had met before now start donning top hats and coats. No, no. The ones they're coming across now are wearing right. European clothes. The closer ones to the Rockies, they're going to be a little bit more tribal. As they move closer to the Pacific it starts to become more obvious. And the reason why these natives are able to speak European languages is because the British have already opened very long-distance trade with the West Coast. So they are trading for furs and such. The Native Americans on the West Coast have such a proficient grasp on English that they decide to demonstrate their abilities for Lewis and Clark's crew. They do so by saying words like musket, powder, damned rascal. But when Lewis and Clark finally get to the Pacific Ocean, they need to find a place to camp for the winter. And Lewis and Clark have made some pretty tough command decisions as they have traveled along the Missouri and Columbia rivers. Sometimes their crew disagreed with them. Lewis and Clark contradicted what their men said. They made a command decision, and it worked out well. Lewis and Clark were right. But this time, Lewis and Clark decide, rather than make a command decision about where they were going to camp for the winter, they would put it to a vote. Everybody got an equal say. Let's run through the roster of people who were there. You've got Lewis, who is the president's personal aide. You've got an army officer, William Clark. You've got Clark's slave, a black man named York. He also got an equal vote. He gets an equal vote. You've got a bunch of rough-and-tumble frontiersmen. You've got a French-Canadian fur trapper. You've got a Native American teenage girl. All of these people are getting an equal say. It's an even more incredible form of equal democracy than what's on the East Coast. The United States' form of democratic republicanism has already spread from one side of the continent to the other, and the United States is only a few decades old. Lewis and Clark are only halfway through their trip at this point. This journey takes place from 1804 to 1806. They're gone for about two years and nine months. At this point, it is the end of 1805. Since the Declaration of Independence was signed, it has been less than three decades, and already this idea of democratic republicanism has spread all the way across the continent. So Lewis and Clark camp on the Pacific Ocean's coastline over the winter, and the next spring, they gotta turn around and do the whole thing over again. And do they go right back the same path they had traveled? More or less. They are going to follow the Columbia River back to its source, and then they are going to follow the Missouri River to get back to St. Louis. Well, I guess they got to get their boat still. <laughs> yeah, right, they right. <laughs> yeah, and dr- using that boat going downstream is going to be much easier. Now, there is a slight discrepancy right towards the middle of their journey. Once they cross the Rocky Mountains, Lewis and Clark's team splits in half. Lewis takes one part, Clark takes the other, and they decide to split off and explore a couple side rivers just so that they can get a better idea of what's out west and add it into some of their maps. I feel like I've seen enough scary movies to know that splitting up is never a good idea. No, that's exactly correct. Lewis's team encounters 
the Blackfeet Indians. The Blackfeet Indians are without a doubt the most savage Native American tribe in this part of the country. It's not just that the Blackfeet are savage towards other tribes. They are often savage within their own tribe. When Lewis encounters the Blackfeet Indians, he has some rather hostile relations with them. At one point, some of the Blackfeet try to ambush them in the middle of the night and steal their guns. Lewis shoots one of them, and another member of the crew stabs a Native American in the heart. But Lewis and his team come out okay. They continue until they meet up with Clark's group, and they continue all the way back down the Missouri River. As they go back down, they pick up a Native American chief named Sheheke. Sheheke has agreed to travel with Lewis all the way back to the East Coast to meet Thomas Jefferson. Think about what Lewis and Clark have accomplished. They have made maps of the West. They have encountered 50 different Native American tribes. They have struck up treaties with many of these tribes. They've only had hostile relations with them a couple of times, like with the Teton Sioux or the Blackfeet. They have been able to collect Native American supplies, artwork, all kinds of stuff, so that Lewis can put it in his journals, make sketches of it, that sort of thing. They have even been able to acquire some plant and animal samples while they were out west. So they have been able to make rough sketches of various animals that they've encountered, take their pelts. They have encountered so many plants and animals that they were able to document roughly 300 of them many of which had never been documented for science before. They were first ones to scientifically describe grizzly bears. Think about them having to encounter grizzly bears out in the wilderness. They're having to shoot those things multiple times, and they're still not going down. They're chasing them through the woods. At one point, they capture a live prairie dog which can be sent back to Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson's got this little live prairie dog running around with him. Lewis and Clark finally get back to St. Louis. The city goes nuts. Because they've been gone for two years and nine months with pretty much no word back. At least when the astronauts went to the moon, they had pictures of what they were going to encounter ahead of time. They had constant contact with Houston. Lewis and Clark had none of that. They went out into the wilderness with supplies that they didn't know were going to help them completely. For all they knew, they were missing something. And all of a sudden, they're back. They made it. And the country as a whole is absolutely ecstatic. As Lewis and Clark continue to the East Coast, one city after another, there are balls and galas and celebrations. Everybody is heralding their incredible achievement. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part series on Meriwether Lewis with Derek. If you would like to continue on with Lewis's story, check out our next episode, which is available right now. We also have an exciting announcement to make. Sarah and I have recently created t-shirts for 10 and 20. If you enjoy our content, if you enjoy the stories that we tell about Tennessee history, please check one of them out. Not only will it support what we do, but they're also pretty cool. They're uh, very cool. Yeah. You can find them at boft.org slash podcast. If you pre-order 
between now and September 3rd, we will waive the shipping fee. So you can get it to your door for a flat $20, which is about as cheap as we could possibly make it. So if you're interested in that, if you would like to support what we do, please check them out. You will see them posted on our social media pages. If you follow us on Instagram at BOFT1864, you can see some images of them or just go to the page where you can purchase them, which again is BOFT.org slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening.